Hey, Scott here with Grace Bible Church. Before we get into this message, I just wanted to thank you for streaming this sermon. We pray that each week you are challenged by who God is and what he has done for you. Now, this is never meant to be a substitute for you to be an active member of a community of faith. If you live in the Hollidaysburg area, or if you're in town for any reason, we encourage you to gather with us on Sunday mornings for our word and worship. You can learn more about what God is doing through our church body on our website, gbclive.org. Now today, we are going to be focusing on Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 25, so pretty much the whole chapter uh, 3 in Galatians. Feel free to follow along in your text. Uh, There is going to be uh, passages up here today. but it might just be easier for you to track along in your, your Bibles. Uh, with that said, I did put some Bibles out on the back shelf. There are free resources for you to take. If you're newer to the class, uh, please take one of those. Um, we spent money on those uh, here at Grace Bible Church to take you, to equip you, to help you learn. So feel free as you're leaving, uh, take one of those in the back. Um, so diving right into Galatians here. Uh, I have an excerpt from John Piper from his article, Christ Redeemed Us from the Curse of the Law. He says, the reason the book of Galatians has such a radical, life-changing message is that it pronounces a curse from God not on atheistic or agnostic outsiders, but on professing Christians who try to serve God in a way that diminishes His grace and cultivates their own pride. Now, in week one, Curdy said that Galatians is probably one of Paul's sharpest critiques in all of his letters. And I think if we're looking at Galatians through this lens of guarding the gospel so, and, so that God's grace is not diminished, and so that the pride of our brothers and sisters and ourselves is not promoted, I think it, it leads us into this word that the Galatians were really, really struggling with. And that word is, John, legalism. Thank you. So they were struggling. This is kind of like a recap here of what we've learned so far. Like I said, we're in chapter 3. We talked about Paul letting the Galatians know that he's kind of worthy of being uh, having authority towards them. Told that if, if you haven't listened to any of the, the lessons or weren't here for the, the other lessons prior to this one, uh, they're, they're found on the podcast. Ask us. Uh, we can help you connect into that. But it was he was letting the Galatians know why he had the authority that he had because he's combating these Judaizers that are also telling these, uh, these newer Gentile Christians that, that they had the authority. And so Paul has now said, he has this authority so that he can speak to what is happening in their culture, which is a legalistic approach to their faith. They were following their teachings, and, and the main thing so far that's been kind of like popping up and will continue through Galatians is this idea of circumcision. They were getting circumcised, thinking they should be circumcised, for the wrong reasons. And we'll get into that as we go here. So legalism, I have another quote here. In essence, this is uh, Sinclair Ferguson on the book, 
The Whole Christ. It's a really powerful read. Recommend that. In essence, it being legalism, is any teaching that diminishes or distorts the generous love of God and the full freeness of his grace. It's in his chapter titled, Danger! Exclamation point, legalism. So you can kind of start to see this idea of distorting grace from that Piper quote that I just gave you. There's a, this is worthy of spending our time on to find out where the wheels were coming off for these Galatians so that we can start to diagnose where the wheels are coming, where we're distorting God's grace in our lives or we're seeing other people distorting God's grace in their lives. So it leads us to our, this is a pretty heavy lesson, so pretty heavy main idea. Try to kind of keep it short and sweet. Um, If you're like me and you're scribbling this down on the very next slide, this is gonna go towards the top. So if I go too fast and you don't write all this down, you're gonna have ample time to finish writing. I kind of have like a mini freak out moment. Does anybody else do that? Whenever you're like writing, taking notes, and then the teacher goes to the next slide, you're like, did anybody? What? what do you? And then you just feel like lost inside a little bit, you know. Uh, but it goes away. You know, God's good. So main idea for today is this is just for Galatians three one through twenty five. Jesus Christ came to complete God's promise and was divinely cursed to give those of faith the divine blessing of true freedom and true life. In him. Now, I'm not going to put the whole passage 1 through 25 up today. We're going to go through it, uh, just kind of snippets. We're actually going to do, you know, it's not going to be in like chronological order. So that's why I said if you want to have your text open, to, maybe that'll help you follow along because we're just kind of be bouncing around. Um, mind you, this is a survey of Galatians. I know it might not feel like it because the other surveys we've done were a little bit lengthier of a Bible book. Uh, so, shorter book, you might think. Well, this doesn't really need to be way zoomed out. Apparently, you've never read Galatians chapter 3. So <laughs> that's the way my brain works as, as, as we're kind of working through the passage. Um, when I'm trying to teach a passage like, like this, I kind of like handholds. So kind of everything in the main idea is, is kind of implanted here through these steps that we're going to take as we go through this chapter or else... Your, your brain will probably just explode. So just hone in on, on some of this stuff. First main point, or that was the main idea, of this, the supporting points here is the fact that Jesus Christ came. Second one being that Jesus, and we'll work through each one of these. Jesus completed God's promise, which we're going to look at covenant a little bit, the Abrahamic covenant. The fact that Jesus was cursed for us. So we're going to talk a little bit about the law doesn't love talking about the law on a Sunday morning. And then through faith in Jesus is the blessing of freedom and life. So if, I don't know if you kind of connected the dots here, but there's a lot of Jesus today, as it should be. So in Galatians, Paul made much of Jesus. And so we ought to do the same today and every day. First step is that Jesus Christ came. Now, this is something that we could easily overlook uh, and just get right into the passage and study it. Um, 
But I don't want to overlook this idea that Jesus Christ came first, because without that, the other supporting ideas would be lousy. So I have a pet peeve on the misuse of words. Sometimes I misuse words. I'm, I'm not saying that I'm not guilty of that. Number one word right now that kind of is like nails on a chalkboard is literally. Um, boy, it just gets me. Um, when I hear it like, dude, I literally died today. Like, I'm, I'm gonna have to go ahead and say you don't, I don't think that word means what you think it means, you know, type of thing. Uh, ironically, or isn't that ironic type of thing, actually the whole song by Alanis Morissette is not irony. I mean, it's, it's, I think there might be one ironic instance in that song, but it's just unfortunate. So the song should be like, isn't that unfortunate? <laughs> um, so look up the word irony as your homework, look up the word uh, literally. Um, but I say that to say, um, actually I'll give you another illustration. So this is a book. My mother actually purchased this for me quite some time ago, a few years ago. This is a book called, Why Do We Say It? The stories, and then the subtitle is, The Stories Behind the Words, Expressions, and Cliches We Use. So I was, I know I'm a dork. Um, this is like a coffee table book. It's actually a pretty cool little book. So it has all kinds of expressions in it. And as I'm preparing for this, trying to kind of like kick this off and, and help you guys kind of understand from a bird's eye view what's happening with the Galatians. Um, one of my favorite things that I've come across in here is the expression, cat out of the bag. And it, it kind of like popped into my brain yesterday as I'm letting my friend's dog out. He was away yesterday and said, hey, bud, can you let my dog out tomorrow or today? And I said, sure. So as I'm letting his dog out, totally forgot he had a cat. So it, it's okay. So the cat attempted to run out of the door as I'm letting the dog out, because cats are evil, and trying to scurry out of the door, and I was able to shut the door in time. Cat's fine. So if you're listening, buddy, like, it's okay. Um, what If I would have used the expression, and I was kind of by myself, if I would have said, oh, almost let the cat out of the bag there, I would have misused that expression, and I'll tell you why. What is the reason a person who divulges a secret is said to let the cat out of the bag? It's because it was once the custom for farmers to bring a suckling pig to market in a bag. Sometimes, however, a farmer would substitute a cat for the pig. If the townsman was foolish enough to buy this pig, pig in a poke is what they called it, without looking inside first, he was cheated out of his money. But if someone let the cat out of the bag, the deceit was uncovered. So if you didn't learn anything about Galatians today, you learned about the expression letting the cat out of the bag and the history behind it. So there's history to that expression. So what Brian talked about on week one, and this is also on the overview notes, is this idea of redemptive, redemptive historical context. So here's a look at historical redemptive a redemptive historical context. So I'm drawing like this big arch, right? So pretend this is the story, the overarching story, right? So I'm just gonna hold this. So here is your creation. You've probably seen this in this class before. If not, this is creation, all right? And then 
darn it, not too long after that was the fall, okay? I'm a visual learner, so if anybody else is a visual learner, this, this should really, really help. So up here, I'm gonna draw a cross. And this is when redemption happened. So as Brian was saying in week one, is history revolves around I me. Mean, we do we we keep time by Jesus. So it's nice to kind of see it this way sometimes. And the Galatians, let's put Gal right here. And this is like the church age, right? And we have restoration. Over here. Okay? So we're basically in this age right here. So what Paul's doing for the Galatians, as we're going to learn about, we'll just put Abraham here, we'll call him Abe, and we'll call Moses. Okay, and we'll talk about them here in a second, but I wanted this up here for you to see this. So the Galatians are here, right? As Paul's writing to them, he's, he's wanting them to not only look back at the cross, sorry if I'm in your way, look back at the cross because they weren't doing that properly. He also wants them to have a proper view, which is where these, this expression comes into play. They were hijacking the law. They were hijacking grace. They were hijacking faith. They were hijacking all these things because they didn't have the proper view of what is actually happening in God's story. So not only can they look back to the cross so that they know how to go forward, but they can also look back to Abraham and Moses to see how they could have looked forward. So they can they have the proper lenses now to understand what was actually going on because in their day they had no idea what was going on here, right? It didn't happen yet. So that is redemptive redemptive historical context in a nutshell. So let's move forward into the actual text. Starting in verse 1 still under this umbrella of Jesus Christ came. He's actually here. <coughs> oh, foolish Galatians, exclamation point, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So do we see, do we see this already that in this rebuke saying Jesus is here? He was here already. Then we fast forward all the way. I told you we were going to jump around here. All the way to verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came. We're going to come back to this later. Um, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So this is that idea of critique. He's critiquing them. And rightfully so. Jump to verses 2 through 5. It says, let me ask you only this. He just like berates them with these questions. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? So second time he's pulled out the foolish card in just three verses. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and, 
and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. So the Galatians had something way different than what these fellows had. They had the spirit of Christ, the spirit of God, which is amazing if you're trying to lead people to follow Jesus. It's a really good helper to have. So he's trying to convey this to them, that you have the Spirit now. You don't need to check boxes. Your faith needs to be in God, in Jesus, in the Spirit that you now have. Piper quote is, uh, another Piper quote says, so what Paul is doing in chapter 3, he is pleading and arguing with the Galatian Christians not to be bewitched by the Judaizers who want them to supplement a life of faith with the effort of the flesh. This is, this is prominent through Hebrews 11. We went through the book of Hebrews months ago, and we see Hebrews 11. Does anybody call Hebrews 11 like the hall of faith? Something like that. So you read through all these people, you know, Abraham and all, like all these amazing, uh, you know, uh, people of faith, men and women of faith. But then you look at Hebrews 12, verse 2, says they were all looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The reason I bring that up is they had no doubt in this culture that he was the founder of their faith. But the, what they weren't connecting was the fact that he was also the, the perfecter of their faith. So it's just not, Jesus is not just a one-trick pony. And that's what they were treating. They were cheapening the power of Jesus. So he's emphasizing Jesus came, and that is a big deal. Step two. Jesus completed God's promise. Now, talk, uh, camp out here on this idea of Abrahamic covenant because Paul talks a lot about Abraham through this passage, brings him up seven times. Um, but the big takeaway, if you're going uh, to take a note here, is the fact that covenant is another word for what? Promise. promise? Right. So, and he uses the word, the, the, the wording promise and covenant through this chapter but to, to help them understand, this, this is not a promise that they have anything to bring to the table. I love how Scott said a few weeks ago that, like, the only thing we bring to the table with our salvation is our sin. You know? So that's kind of what Paul is emphasizing uh, as we go through chapter 3 here. Um, but the, the note here is the fact that this covenant was a promise of faith. A promise of faith. So we'll look at it. You're like, you're a liar. So we got to like rewind real quick to Genesis 12, 3, just so you get a little bit of context here. Uh, God says, I will bless you, speaking to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is where God chooses Abram or Abraham. This is in chapter 12. Fast forward a couple chapters to... Chapter 15, this is where the covenant really takes hold. Verses 5 and 6, 
And he brought him outside. This is Abraham being brought outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So after, right after this was like the, the gory scene where God makes it, he like splits these animals in half. There's like all these like carcasses and the birds try to peck, peck away at the other birds and whatever. If you haven't read that, read the rest of uh, chapter 15 in, in Genesis. But the, the takeaway there is the fact that Abraham was sleeping when this, when the covenant really went, went into fru- fruition and God walked through, that was kind of like what they did. So the ceremony was like people walked through like the aisle together of these dead animals um, to, as a sign of covenant. God walked alone because Abraham really couldn't bring anything to the table. And if we kind of look back, we see that him and his offspring didn't really do the greatest job. They didn't do what Jesus was only able to do as far as holding up any kind of end of the covenant or promise. So then we're jumping into verses 5 through 9. I just love how Paul writes this. He says, Does he who supplies the Spirit, we just looked at this verse, but does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham, so again, mentioned seven times through this chapter, why do you think that is? Because they were all about keeping the law, right? And Abraham was kind of a big deal when it comes to keeping the law and God choosing people. So he's throwing Abraham out because they were hijacking the whole relationship that Abraham had with God. So he's kind of rebooting them here. So he says, uh, in verse 6, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith, see how that's mentioned quite a couple times here, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So he wasn't calling Abraham a rule keeper. And we know that because of what he says next in verses 15 through 18. He says, to give a human example, brothers, he gives them an illustration. I mean, this is awesome. Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, he's like taking him to school here, this is cool. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, in quotes. Quoting the passage we just looked at in Genesis, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, through that ceremony I was just saying, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So are you starting to gather what they were doing here? Is They were making everything Abraham did was all about the law. It was all about keeping rules, all about checking boxes. We got to check boxes like Abraham checked boxes. 
So you see Paul uses a fair amount of legal jargon here in his letters to illustrate his points. So the, uh, this idea of adds to it actually means to append something, usually at, at the end of a document. So if we had an agreement, it's kind of like throwing something in at the end, like last minute or something, or changing it, not necessarily like crossing something out, just adding something to it at the end. Use the words, he uses the word ratified twice. Ratification is the action of signing or giving formal consent to a treaty, contract, or agreement, making it officially valid, which is where I'm getting this wording completed. They were validated in Christ, and they weren't seeing, they weren't connecting that dot, that, that Christ is what really ratified this promise overall, which is why this concept of redemptive historical is, is just, it's very powerful. I mean, what did Jesus say on the cross? Anybody remember? It is finished. We're going back just a couple of verses here, or just one verse. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. It's in Christ Jesus. And then verse 22, But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It's this idea of in Christ, which we uh, saw last week when Grebel was teaching uh, chapter 2, the I have been crucified with Christ is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is an excerpt out of uh, Sinclair Ferguson's book that I mentioned earlier. It says, The New Testament Christians did not think of themselves as Christians. But if not, how did they think of themselves? It's a good question. Contrast these descriptors with the overwhelmingly dominant way that the New Testament describes believers. It is that we are in Christ. The expression, in one form or another, occurs well over a hundred times in Paul's 13 letters. Then draw the obvious conclusion. If this is not the overwhelmingly dominant way in which we think about ourselves, we are not thinking with the renewed mindset of the gospel. It's a very powerful identity that we have in Christ. There's a very powerful identity that these new believers, these Gentile believers had, which was in Christ. They weren't saying, hey, you Christian, hey, you Christian, hey, you Christian. You know, it just didn't really happen. They were in Christ. I think if you just pause for a moment and just start to think about that identity, it holds a little more weight in our hearts to know that we are in Christ. When you go home today, you're in Christ. When you go to work tomorrow, and it's dark at 5 o'clock when you leave work and you're like all jacked up, you're, I'm in Christ at that moment. Paul was trying to tell him there's something to that. He completed this promise so that you could be in him. Nobody else could do that until now. The third point is that Jesus was cursed for us. So just like the Galatians were not only misunderstanding and misusing the gospel 
the whole promise of God, they were also misunderstanding or misusing the law, or as Paul writes, the works of the law. It's where that legalism comes in here, Johnny. So Galatians 3.10 says, for all who rely on works of the law, now you're not going to see legalism show up really a lot like the wording legalism. So usually when you see this works of the law, that's what Paul's talking about, is a, a misuse of the law. So he says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. This was taken from Deuteronomy 27, 26. If you want to write that down, that's Deuteronomy 27, 26, which is, if you start to look that up, like 27 has 11 straight curses. And then it jumps into chapter 28, where it's like, hey, here's a lot of blessings for being obedient. And then the end of 28 says, here's a lot of curses for being disobedient. So it's like, again, back here, right? They don't, they don't have Jesus on the scene yet, but they were acting these Galatians were still acting as though that that was their M.O. Fast forward to verses 11 through 13. Jesus was cursed for us. This is verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. So if you guys didn't already know that, you can't really keep the, you're not going to be able to keep the law to um, justify yourself. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by faith. We'll get to that in just a second. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. References Deuteronomy 21-23 for the tree curse. If you're not really uh, up to date on your tree curses, Deuteronomy 21-23 is where you're going to want to camp out there. So we're seeing that Christ... He's saying Christ actually redeemed us from the fact that we can't keep the law. Which is bad news without Jesus. Galatians 3.19, why then the law? Which is probably a good question if you're a Galatians. Like, well, then what's the point? I mean, I'm a newbie here. Like, you got to help me out. Like, I don't even know. I'm just learning about this law stuff. Like, what's, well, why would we just jump over the law? Couldn't there be? No, you can't. It was, and he explains to them, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring, which we just looked at through the covenant with Abraham, the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, Jesus. Galatians 3.21 says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Really, are you guys seeing like the distinction here? Like faith, law, blessing, curse. You know, he's, there's so much contrast in this passage. The law not only shows the Galatians how righteous Jesus is, which should show us how righteous Jesus is, how amazing he is, how macho Jesus is. He can just keep the law like it's nothing, right? But the law should also show them how unrighteous they are, and they deserve the curse of death. It should point you to both of those things. This is John Calvin says in his uh, Epistles of Paul, says the law was given in order to make known transgressions obvious. The law should bring a bright beacon pointing to the fact that we can't do it on our own. 
And that's what Paul was trying to illustrate to them. And finally, our last point is through faith in Jesus is the blessing of freedom and life. So see how Paul paints this picture for them here at the, the, the tail end of our, our, what we're going to cover today. And this, this has huge ramifications into leading into next week as far as their identity as, as a body, as a people of, of God. So I like how he kind of kicks this hole off. This is where this idea of freedom in Christ comes into play. Like, look at the wording that he uses here. This is verses 23 through 25, chapter 3. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. In order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer, no longer under that guardian. So the law will hold them hostage if they expect themselves to be the hero to free themselves from that bondage. Instead of seeing Jesus as the perfect hero who has already set them free through faith in him. It's something that they were already set free from. So you can see why Paul is like so concerned here because why would he want these people to act like they're held hostage, like they're held captive? We don't want anybody to live their life that way, do we? So why would Paul be any different? That's why he just went through that crazy, you know, few verses that we just looked at. It's like, this is the law, stupid, foolish people. This is what the law was really for. Like, this is what the promise, this is what Abraham, this is what this was all about. And you're hijacking it to make it cheap and petty. You're not seeing Jesus for who he is. He's basically saying you're, you're dumb. You're just foolish in your thinking. You're not thinking this all the way through. You're basically just kind of skirting through your lives. Being like, you know, like, I'm just going to get by. You know, I got to get circumcised. Well, he said I got to get circumcised. For I'm going to get circumcised like seven times. Yeah, because it's the number of completions. So, yeah, it doesn't really work out. But you know what I'm saying? Like, that, that's just the mentality. And Paul's like, no, that's the stupid thinking. You got you to think right. You have God's spirit. Like, use it. <laughs> You know? So that was like the freedom that comes. This is life. I told you we'd come back to this. You can't like skirt through Galatians 3 and not land on verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So I've read some other translations, just really kind of racking my brain around this one. It, uh, this is the NLT says, so it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. So that, this word here, live, I looked it up here in my fancy Bible software, says this is a supernatural living, okay? This isn't like, okay, like this is how I live. This is, they have been given life from death. So the definition says to become or be alive in a transcendent manner, especially as characteristic of resurrected life or life without sin 
or with sin subjugated. So what he's saying here is, and he's, he's, this is actually caked through the Bible a little bit, this idea of the righteous shall live by faith, is faith gives, in Christ gives you life. Not, oh, you're righteous now. Well, this is how you need to live. It, the fact that you need to look back that you were given life. You were dead, bro. <laughs> and now you are alive. And the only way that that was possible is through the blood of Jesus, through the resurrection, the new life that they have gotten through him. So we spoke on law and faith, and we spoke on curses and blessings through this chapter. And again, this is survey. I would argue that everybody at some point, put on your bucket list, wrestle with Galatians 3. It's an amazing passage. There's only so much you can teach in like 35, 40 minutes, right? But there is one person that holds curses and blessings and law and faith all together. And that one is Jesus. Without Jesus, there is no ratification. Without Jesus, there is no justification. Without Jesus, there is because he's the only one that has the power to give life. So you can see why Paul was being so serious when he was writing this letter to the Galatians. They were living like dead people. They were living like cursed people, and they weren't reaping the freedom and life that you get from Jesus. So practically... I have another excerpt from Piper here. He says, The decision of curse or blessing hangs on how you obey and who gets the credit. How's your obedience to Jesus oriented? It's not the fact that the law is goofy. It's not to say that obedience is like, meh. Read Romans 6. That will speak to that. Right? It's not saying do whatever you want and grace will just kind of like take care of it. That's not the picture. Although it's the same. This book is really good on antinomianism as well. Like people that abuse God's grace. So it's not just like, like the law is super, super cool. Like they were like grace is you know, going to cover everything. We can do whatever we want. You know, that's not, I would say either way, you don't have a good lens for Jesus. In both of those facets. So almost like as we go from here, we should all be thinking, why do we do what we do? <clears throat> Tell you what, man, that rocks me. We could obey for the complete wrong reasons. Do you think for one second God wants that from you? No. He wants you to obey because you love him. Because why else would you obey, you know? Like to get, to get your credit like the Galatians were doing? Man, that's bunko. So as we close, I'll just reemphasize the main idea so you can kind of see it all here. The fact that Jesus Christ came to complete God's promise, as we're seeing is like this, see like all Jesus did, like he's, he's just amazing. He completed the promise. He was cursed to give those of faith the divine blessing of true freedom and true life in him.